Welcome, Clever Harvest Tribe, and we are here for episode two of season five of the All Stars. Today we have Barbara S. Dos Santos PhD. Hey, Barbara, how are you? Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to be here, to be back here, um, and I can't wait to have this conversation. Yeah, this is going to be cool. But before we get started, can you back up so we can see your shirt? Oh, yeah. That's me. Clever hybrids. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I was listening to our episode again from last time, Barbara, and it was released in August 2020, but I think we actually talked in June of that year. So it's been a minute. It has happened in those three years. Yeah, so... First, let's start with that. What happened in the last two years? <laughs> yeah. First of all, we probably heard about a global pandemic that changed everybody's lives. Although it was going on right at the time, right? So I think for me, the biggest things that happened is I finished my PhD. I got married and I started my career outside academia. And I'm working on consulting now. I feel like I finally started the life that I worked so hard to get. Yeah, those are like the biggest changes. Okay. It sounds like you had a bit of a commencement, so that's exciting. Yes. Literally, actually, my graduation was the first in-person graduation since the pandemic started. So it was what? a little commencement. It was very nice. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yes. Nice. So I remember in our last discussion, you said, yes, I'm doing a PhD, but I'm not going to be an academic doing research. And now we're seeing a lot of posts on LinkedIn about this academic exodus because people are getting tired of being an adjunct professor with 80 hours a week and minimum wage. They're like, forget you. <laughs> I'm going to be a consultant or work in tech or something. Have you had any of your former classmates that have reached out to you because maybe they said, I want to be a researcher. And then they're like, no. <laughs> I think this is a very natural thing that is happening for many reasons. Like there are just no academic jobs anymore. Those jobs just don't exist. So my whole cohort, there are four of us. All of us already finished our PhDs. All of us are doing something else. That's just where we found the uses for the skills that we got. Yeah, I think people who are now in PhD programs are realizing a need to actually transition outside academia. And this is starting to happen organically. Okay, so what do you think will happen to those institutions now that their pipeline is starting to dry up? This transition actually happened because of decisions made in institutions. So at some point in the last 10 years, most universities started to not hire so much tenure track professors anymore and started to hire more adjunct faculty as a cost reduction decision. So because of that, People were no longer finding jobs, and then we have to find other opportunities. So they decided to do this to cut costs. And what we are living now, it's actually a consequence of that decision in universities. And most of the critics, and I agree with that, think that this is a long-term problem in the making for universities. Because adjunct professors, as you mentioned, only have time to teach. There's no time to do research or anything else. So who will be doing the research in the future in universities? So in the future, we might have a situation where universities are no longer producing high quality research. And that is a problem because 
since we developed this academic system, most of the research in the world is coming from universities. It's a big problem. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in the future to technological advancement, really. Because if you think about private-funded research, a lot of this is driven by profit and things that can drive profit. Research in social science, for example, doesn't necessarily drive profits for the private sector. So we might not have a lot of research in my field, in climate policy, for example, definitely does not drive profit. Who's going to do it? And there's also an educational problem. If you only have adjuncts teaching students and they're teaching 80 hours a week, there is no incentives for high quality teaching. The incentive is just to go through the semester and just finish your day, do what you have to do. So there's no development of high quality teaching techniques within universities as well. For example, I also teach a class as an adjunct. That semester, spring semester, was my first semester doing that. And I just wanted to do it. I only taught one class and it took me about 10 hours a week of work and on top of my full-time job. Can you imagine someone who actually needs to do this for a living? And I got paid very little. Like the money was definitely not the reason why I was doing that. I don't even know how people do that. And people who need to do this for a living, is there's zero incentives to do well. They just need to take as many courses as possible just to pay their bills and just get through it. Long term, that's very detrimental. So I don't know. I don't know if universities will realize this on time. We'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. Teaching in general is going through a crisis. It's, you have it at the higher education level, then the K through 12. Even in my industry, language teaching, there's a lot of companies that are, I don't know what exactly is the mindset shift. Maybe they've, they're trying to copy the software companies with cutting costs. But when you cut costs in a service industry, then you also cut quality. So maybe that will click later when it's at catastrophe mode. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, when we hit a situation of catastrophe, maybe we'll realize. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll make a new model where, as you said, it's more going through the private sector. We might have a lot more Tony Starks in the future than we want. <laughs> I do think, particularly on technology, the research is shifting to the private sector for sure. But that uh, when we shift research to the private sector, research fields that are not profitable will suffer. And a lot of the research that we need in the world are things that really are not profitable. We'll have to figure it out when we get to that point. <laughs> but now you've been in the work world as a PhD, what were some of the biggest shocks that you had after graduating going into the workforce? I don't think there's any shock because I already knew that I was going to go to the non-academic market for a long time. I was preparing for that already. So a lot of the things that I found were things that I already knew, a little bit of confirmation. For example, my research skills are very valuable. So a lot of the work that I do today are closely related to the research I did during my PhD. And I do that very well because I have a PhD and I know how to do that. You don't need to have a PhD to do this type of research that I'm doing at work. But because I have a PhD, I just do it so much better and I can learn things so much quicker. So I see a lot of the work coming my way and I am a very 
highly demanded person on my team because I can do things very well and also very fast. So that was a confirmation. I knew that, you know, I heard about a lot how, oh, your PhD skills are very valuable. This is very good. You're going to be a very good researcher outside academia. But it was very interesting to see that in practice. So a lot of my colleagues who have master's degrees, they do great research and they're very good at that. But I think the way I see the research coming from an, a PhD background is, is different. It's a little bit different and I'm actually able to do things a lot faster. That was a confirmation that was interesting for me, how my skills are valuable. I think another confirmation is your PhD doesn't really matter until something happens. So for example, we have a very difficult client. In consulting, we work with clients and they are difficult because there is not a clear decision-making structure. So when you have committees coming from different sectors, everybody has a big ego and no one has the final decision-making. That creates a very difficult dynamic. So one of our clients, they always push back on our recommendations. At times, when we are presenting our findings, they actually brought me in to present. Because I have a PhD, that was interesting and was actually very rewarding. Hey, I'm a doctor, Barbara de Santos, and this is the research I've done. So people are like, oh, okay. So that was quite fun. But other than that, my PhD actually doesn't matter. And I already knew that was not going to matter. It was not going to make a difference. It makes a difference on the work that I do, right? But like thinking about prestige, I don't have more prestige because I have a PhD. And that was expected. We have rules on how we do surveys and things. And people don't quite know why we do that. But I know because we have theory behind all of that. And I'm able to actually explain to people that I'm leading, like we are doing this X, Y, and Z because of X, Y, and Z. So that's fun too. But yeah, in general, having a PhD doesn't really make a big difference. And that's a, a bit of a confirmation of what I was already expecting coming into it. But I, I still think it's worth it. it. I don't regret it. Okay, cool. And just backtracking a little bit here. When you say research, what exactly do you mean? Because for millennials and under, when we think research, the first thing that pops in is Google it, but that's not what you mean. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. So we, when we talk research, we're really talking about using the scientific method to find an answer for things. I work at Cadmus Group, like a consulting company, and I work in the energy sector. So the energy sector, we do, my particular team does evaluations. So when you have big utility companies, they have a portfolio of programs. So for example, in DC, we have PEPCO. PEPCO has a bunch of programs to save energy, to implement energy efficiency, uh, solar panels, and things like that. Those programs are regulated by state organizations. In DC, you have the city board. The regulations in all states establish that those programs have to be evaluated by a third party. So then the utility company hires Cadmus, my company, to come and evaluate the program. My job is to get one particular program and use the scientific method to test whether that program is achieving its goal or not, it's working or not. There is other groups that do the quantitative perspective. So they look at savings, energy savings, CO2 emissions, and things like that. I am looking at the qualitative part. So I'm looking at Customer satisfaction, I'm looking at implementation, I'm looking at effectiveness of marketing, so we can actually do recommendations. Most of my job is to design research, qualitative research, and report on the findings. And on top of that, 
do recommendations. So I design surveys, I design interviews, I design marketing analysis, and I design something we call like logic models, which is a little bit of a decision trees type of things. A lot of my job is just designing those research methods and research methodologies, doing that research. And actually I have a team that actually does everything. And then I come back later, I analyze all the results and I do a report, which is very similar to what a paper would look like in academia. What is super cool in that is that I get to actually give uh, suggestions to the utility. So I come to Pepco and I say, hey, Pepco, if you do X, Y, and Z, you might increase your participation in this particular program. So most of my job, it's actually doing research the way that I did in academia, but in the way that is implemented in the real world and might actually lead to reductions in emissions, which is something that I really like and it's really cool. It's hard to get people to focus on climate that even though things are happening now, different of natural disaster events right in front of their face, it's the inflation and other things that they're dealing with. So how can you help people to think long-term? What can you help them to think about? This is very hard because when you have a state, let's think about West Virginia, which is where I went to school and I love that state. They are struggling with poverty. They are struggling with not having enough resources. They are very much based on coal and they love coal. And actually coal was what made the United States be what it is today. It funded our industrialization and the big boom of skyscrapers. So that was the basis of our economy, but it's dying and the state is suffering a lot. So how can we tell them we're going to have to cut coal, stop producing the little bit of coal they used to produce, and that's it, right? We need to provide, and at the same time, they're struggling with poverty. Like the highest levels of poverty in the U.S. is in West Virginia and is in Kentucky, the states that were highly based on coal in the past. They're not worried about climate change right now. They're worried about poverty. They're worried about education. They're worried about the drug addiction crisis. So it is very hard. And I think the solution is to show people how climate change is connected to all of those things. So we, if we are to invest in renewable energies, we can do this here. We can do this in your backyard. We can put solar panels here. We can actually sell those the energy from the solar panels to generate income to you. We can't connect all of those struggles that you're going through with climate change or the industry of green energy can help generate income for your community. But to do that, you actually need to have a lot of investments. It's expensive to do something like that. Not only the education, but also the investments in infrastructure and the green infrastructure. The fossil fuel industry is so entrenched in our system, in our political economic system, that Gene Justice, for example, which is currently the governor in West Virginia, is the richest governor in a country. Like his personal wealth is the highest in all governors in the country because it's coming from the fossil fuel industry. Like that is his family legacy. So do you think Jim Justice will be interested in investing in the transitioning to a green economy or to a green energy system in the state? I don't know. I think the only thing we can do now is to really generate grassroots demand for a transition to a post-fossil fuel-based political economic system. Yeah, even here in Germany, they they have a reputation of being a recycler and having 
these green energy things, but a lot of it is greenwashing. Many politicians get paid by coal industry, the car industry, and even bottled water. There's not that many water fountains in Germany. Almost everybody buys bottled water to drink at home, not outside, at home, even though the tap water is okay to drink. So everybody's getting paid somehow. Yeah. Yeah, and that is because the basis of our economic and political system, our whole civilization was based in the Industrial Revolution, which was basically fundamentally in exploiting the potential of fossil fuels. So changing this is hard. It's very hard. And I don't know if we're going to be able to change on time. You know, we are already suffering catastrophic events as a result of climate change and things will get worse. How much worse we get before we're actually able to do something? I don't know. And there's a lot of people fighting really hard to change things. And there's a whole industry focused on this transition. So that's where I want to be. That's the space where I want to be. And there's a lot of people who also want to do that. So as much as I am a little bit cynical, I'm also, I haven't lost my hopes. That's why I'm still working with this. Yeah, a lot of my language clients too, they work in the sustainability industry and they're like, this is sometimes it's very frustrating, but then when you have a win, you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got it. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Slowly but surely, I hope. <laughs> but as you said, we're working on this long-term goal of trying to get the climate under control. But as you said, there's a lot of families worldwide right now that are dealing with poverty already or will be falling into poverty sometime this year because of the inflation that is compounded by COVID climate change and now the war in Ukraine. So everything that could go wrong has gone wrong pretty much. So how can people deal with this in a resilient way? Yeah, it's very difficult, right? As a good leftist, I believe that the government has an important role in social security and in create the safety net for the population. And in the past 20 to 30 years, there has been this neoliberal approach that we need minimum state. And I am very critical of that personally, because I think that when you have a system that is focused only on profit, there will always be losers and the losers will always be the poor people. So I think that the government needs to step up and take a role in in taking care of the vulnerable populations. But As we don't have that, how do we do this in our individual levels? And that's where we go back to living in community. It's so important to have your community around you, which in the U.S., we don't have that much of a culture. This individualist culture is so strong, very different than in Latin America, where you actually have a community-focused groups. For example, because of the pandemic and also because the government is a terrible government in Brazil, 25% of the Brazilian population are facing food insecurity. We haven't seen data like that, numbers like that since the 70s. And that is a direct result of mismanagement of the government and the pandemic. But I think we have a culture of hustling, of finding solutions, creative solutions, and we take care of each other too. We have tight-knit communities, people take care of each other, which is not so much the case in the U.S. where you have this very individualistic society. 
that's how we do really in Latin America. We find our ways, but we also need to make sure that once we find places of privilege, for example, I have a full-time job, those insecurities of the pandemic didn't even touch me. So is my role as someone who faced that before, and now I'm in a different position to really take care of my community. So I have been supporting organizations in DC of, that are feeding the people that are struggling now. And some organizations there also do support women, uh, particularly women in vulnerability. There's one that I love. The name is I Support the Girls. They give support for women's health issues. They give underwear and pads and tampons to women in situation of homelessness. So I think uh, finding community that you can support from your place of privilege is also very important. The little bit you can do is fine, but there is always more we can do. And supporting your community, I think the people who are around you is the biggest thing you can do. Yeah, that's true. One thing that happens sometimes, though, with professionals that are people of color is they reach this point where they're at a stable position and then everybody comes to them for something. How do you balance helping with still having what you need to take care of you? I have not faced this problem, thankfully. I think in a situation like that, it's very important to have clarity of what you need to take care of you. Generally, for me, the minimum thing I need to take care of me is rest. I need to be able to rest because you cannot produce if you're tired. I need to be able to take care of my immediate family. Like my siblings are still going through education and they still need a lot of support. I need to make sure I have a minimum to feed myself and to pay my rent. I think this all summarizes to mental well-being. So as long as you can take care of your mental well-being and you are in a safe position, you can support whoever is around you and whoever needs help. Yeah, I have never been in a situation where I don't have enough to give and to support, thankfully, but I also, I don't have a lot of people depending on me. So I know it's a difficult balance, but you do need to make sure you are well so you can carry the others around you. And uh, it's a balance that you need to find with yourself. You need to decide where do you want to stand and what works for you and what doesn't. And sometimes people might need to say no to things that are very difficult and it's hard. It's very hard. But you cannot save the world by yourself. You can only affect something a little bit as an individual. So probably should keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a good reminder. And also with everything going on, there are some people that they've gotten frozen. They've put all of their goals on hold. They stopped doing anything. How can someone turn this crisis into an opportunity or still keep chipping away at their goals without burning out? I think there are moments that surviving is enough. Just existing and surviving is enough. We are living a very difficult moment, a crisis that has been extended for a long time. And a lot of people don't even have strength anymore to keep on. Yesterday, I was talking to a friend about that. She was finishing her first year of the PhD with a lot of complications in her life. And she's like, I don't know if I can thrive in this program. And I was like, at times, surviving is enough. Just getting through this, this hustle culture can be very toxic. Because you don't have to be producing. You don't have to be innovating at all times. 
Sometimes you are just surviving. You're just existing. And that's fine. Listen to your inner child. Listen to yourself. Pay attention to what your body's telling us. I saw a sentence the other day that it was very interesting. It's your body will tell you what you are not listening from your mind. So if our minds are tired and we are not listening to our inner self saying, I'm tired, your body will tell you. Our, our stomach, for example, it's a great indicator of how our stress levels are. And I know this in, in, from a personal experience. So I think in moments like this that we're living now, the world is falling apart around us. And I think existing is enough. Just surviving and taking one day at a time. There are times that it's okay. You don't need to be thriving at all times. Sometimes existing is fine. Yeah, that's a good point. We talked about that with Stefana last time too. And with the social media world that it's, you got to be on all the times. Like we are not computers, y'all. And you hear about people in history that tried to do that even before social media, like wrote a whole bunch of books or wrote a whole bunch of different pieces of music, died at 25. Blah, 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 died early. Yeah, also died early. Or did this, had no friend. <laughs> it makes me think, what is, why do we live? It's a very philosophical question, but what is the reason of life? If you don't live your life, if you just go through the motions and go through that hustle, like what's even the point? As I mentioned earlier, I'm in a season where I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing, I'm just doing the bare minimum. So I finished my dissertation last year. I graduated in December. In the sem spring semester, I took home teaching a class. I was working a lot until May when the classes finished. And right now I'm like, I'm not going to do anything for a few months. This summer, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to hustle. I'm not going to thrive. I'm not going to be posting on LinkedIn like crazy. I'm just going to enjoy. And especially because, as I, I mentioned in my first interview, my husband is a soccer coach. He's in Georgia still. So he's only home for the summer and the university breaks. So he's home now. We are celebrating one year of marriage in July. And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. And even my advisor at my university invited me to participate in a research project that was so interesting. I'm like, I want to do this so much. But I'm like, that's going to take a lot of time. No, thank you. I'm not doing anything. I'm just working. And when my work is over at 5 p.m., I'm not even doing extra hours. Unless there's something like super important, it hasn't happened yet. I'm doing my bare minimum this summer. I'm just doing the bare minimum and I'm living my life. I'm enjoying. We're going out on the park and playing together. We're just sitting and reading a book, just doing nothing. Sometimes we just need that and that's fine. There are seasons in life. Yeah, and it's a way to show modesty and be humble and be like, you know what? My level of energy is here. I'm just going to keep it right here for now. I've heard something today when I was doing some research. It said conscientiousness or working really hard and trying to do it well can easily turn into perfectionism if you're not careful. And perfectionism will kill you. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think a lot of the struggles I had in the past several years, especially during the PhD, was dealing with my perfectionism. Because it can never be perfect. It can never be good enough. So you start hurting yourself and punishing yourself for not being good enough, but it's never going to be good enough. Yeah. I was only able to actually finish when I understood that. It's never going to be good enough as long as it is admittable, passable. That's fine. Yeah. They have the, that expression, just ship it, let it go. <laughs> just ship it. Yeah. I love it. Just ship it. Yeah. It's hard sometimes though. It's like, no, okay. 
No, it's very hard. It's very hard. It took me a lot of therapy to actually be able to let it go, to just ship it. I still struggle with that, but. Yeah, why do you think that is? Because I've noticed that's more with millennials and also women millennials. So why do you think that is? As millennials, we're living in the world that was created by the older generation that had everything that we don't have anymore. They were able to get a job and buy a house out of college, which is not the case for us. And as women, we live in the world that was created by men and for men. And as people of color, we also live in the world that was created by white people for white people. We are thriving in the world that was not made for us. So. We need to be better than everybody else in everything we do to actually even get an opportunity to show our work. So during my PhD, during grad school, during college, everybody near me had so much more opportunities in life than I had growing up. They were so much better than I was uh, in so many ways because they had access to educational levels that I didn't. I had to work five times harder than everybody else. I had to be better than everybody else just so I can get through the finish line, just so I can have the opportunity to be there. And there's also the other thing in our minds that we need, we constantly are thinking to ourselves, I need to earn the right to be here. I need to earn the respect of my peers because I'm here. So we pressure ourselves. We, first of all, we need to actually do better than people around us to be successful. And we also pressure ourselves to show that we are better because we always are under this pressure that we need to do better. We need to work so hard that we actually internalize that a lot. A lot of times that is true, right? When I was in grad school, I had to work harder because I didn't have the same baseline of education that my peers did. But that's actually not true anymore. I actually got the same education that they have now. I have a PhD. I don't need any more to prove myself. I got there. I already got what was necessary. But that mentality is still here. So I still need to deal with this perfectionism and this hustle and this craziness to be better at all times. It's a very difficult balance that we need to find, but it's possible. It's possible. It only took me 10 years to learn that it's possible. So now that I learned that it's possible, I'm trying to exercise this. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a process. I'm still working on it too. Cause so, like you said, you go through these periods of like you're surviving you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then you push it into thriving mode. And then if you're not careful, you can go into hustle overdrive and then you burn out. <laughs> yeah. Overdrive. Yeah. When we go back to that conversational supporting a community, if you burn out, you can't support anyone because when we burn out, you can't produce, you can't do anything. So how are you going to give back? if you don't have anything to give because you're burnt out. So it is very important to take care of yourself, to take care of your mind and to be sensitive to where you are and how you feel and rest and, and integrate rest to your life every day. This is the very most important thing that you can do. Yeah, and often we talk about when we burn out, what should we do? But if you know someone who's dealing with burnout, how can you help them in a practical way? Yeah, I think you can do everything you can do to give them the opportunity to step back. So if it's a friend, you say, hey, you need to step back. Why don't you come over for dinner during the week? Or if it's a partner, you really need to take it back. Why don't you take your job part time? 
I work a little bit more to cover the finances of the family. So you should do whatever you can to give them the space to step back. Because when you're burned out, I think what the research tells us is that it's not just take a vacation. You actually need to reduce the levels of responsibility in your mind permanently for a while until you're able to actually step back to your previous life. Actually, don't go to your previous life because the previous life took you to where you weren't. Yeah, and vacations can actually be stressful too. So you got to take that time to pause and then figure out what needs to be shifted. Yeah, when you're burned out, you really need to change your life. It's You're never going to be able to go back to where you were. And it's not a good idea. Don't go back to where you were. Find a healthier, balanced life. Yeah, it takes time to actually figure out what that is. And sometimes you might need to change your, your career. But it happens. I've been thinking a lot in actually living my life instead of thriving at all times. And I think it's a lot of it because I just finished this eight-year-long grad school experience and I achieved the biggest goal of my life was to get a PhD. And now I'm at the same time that I'm thinking, okay, what's next? I'm also thinking, do I need to have a next big goal or can I just enjoy, live my life to the fullest extent? Life is short. Like I'm already in my almost mid-30s and all I've done in my life is work. I worked so hard to achieve my goals. I did not enjoy life at all. So maybe I don't need the next big thing. Maybe I can just be myself and, and live my life and love the people around me and have a life that is worth living instead of just working all the time for a goal. Maybe I'll find a balance. That's what I want to find. What is the balance? Yeah, we have to keep that in mind, too, because before you used to hear about people having a midlife crisis, but now people are having quarter life crises. They get to 25 and they're like, OK, I did everything I want to do. Now, what do I do? And they lose their purpose and they freak out. You don't have to know what's next right now. Just enjoy the moment. Yeah. And I think that's why for me, working with climate and working to do something for climate is good. Because this is a hard work and it's a lifetime goal. I can still enjoy my life and working towards my goal, but live a slower life than I did before. I think that's what I really want at my life right now is just to be a bit slower than it was before. Yeah, I think me too. But most of us are thinking that we don't want to go back to the hustle and bustle that we had pre-pandemic. It's just once you slow down and you're, you smell the roses, so to speak, you realize, no, I was doing a lot of stuff that I didn't actually need to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's our takeaway. Let's all try to live a bit slower. Yeah, slow down. Yeah, <laughs> let's slow down. Maybe that's what it means to be an all-star. Clive a hybrid. <laughs> yeah, maybe. All-stars know how to conserve their energy. <laughs> it's important, yeah. Because if you're born now, you won't be able to actually do anything yeah yeah it's crazy as a wrap up here what would you say to the generation behind us gen z they might be graduating right now in the middle of stagflation or having bad quarter life crisis what reassurance would you give them to chill out <laughs> i i actually think they are a lot chill than millennials are. They have been watching us and seeing us struggle so much and i think this is a little bit clear when you see all those jokes of generational fights and how they 
criticize millennials a lot because apparently we work all the time and the, we complain a lot that we can't buy a house. The one thing I would tell them is get off your phone and go live outside. This is one thing that we millennials still do. We still hang out with our friends with our phones in our hands, although we do work too much. But yeah, get off your phone. Go live outside. Go smell the roses. Like literally go smell the roses. So I think that's what I would tell them. That's what I tell my sister. Yeah, we need some green spaces and quiet time. I hope Gen Z and Generation Alpha, I know you youngins are listening to this, but hope you, you get some advice from this podcast. And Barbara, could you tell us again where we can reach you if we want to hear some more insights? I am very active on LinkedIn. Barbara S. Dos Santos. I was a little bit active on Twitter, but I'm not anymore because I decided I, I don't want to hustle too much. <laughs> Instagram, I also post. My Instagram is at bhr. BHA Dos Santos and it's mostly the stuff I do and it's actually interesting because you clearly see a difference on my Instagram the past few years before it was a lot of hustle and bustle now it's parks and flowers and trees <laughs> yeah there's a clear shift on my Instagram but anyone's also feel free to email me my email is barbara slsantos at gmail.com I'm sure it's going to be on the podcast notes. Yesterday, actually, I announced on LinkedIn that I'm instituting an open door policy. So if anyone wants to talk to me about sustainability careers or academic careers, I have my doors open. I will give you 15 minutes of my time just to chat with you. So feel free to reach out. I would be very glad to give you some advice and to answer some questions. I got a lot of those before. And really, that's a really good advice. Reach out to people. People are generally happy to help. Most people are happy to help. So don't be afraid. Just reach out and ask questions. People are generally friendly. Yeah, that's true. Even Steve Jobs did that when he was a little kid. He called, I don't know if it was Hewlett or Packard. I think it was Hewlett. He was still at the phone book and he said, yeah, I want to work for you. And he said, okay. So you never know what happens unless you ask. That's true. <laughs> you never know. All right. This is Gabby V wrapping up the... Episode 2 of Season 5, our Resilience Series. We'll see you next time.